One day, in 1996, with a leap from adjective to noun, a new concept arose within psychoanalytic thought. The infantile. This term remained so pertinent over time that it has become the core of the title of the 52nd IPA Congress. Florence Guignard was the author who first formulated it in such an accomplished form, and in today's episode, she draws important clinical consequences from the theoretical reflection on this concept concerning the analytic relationship and uh, the interpretative activity of the psychoanalyst in his daily work. The infantile with capital I is a limit concept which uh, aims at describing a flexible structure at the limits of our animality, at the borders of our unconscious and our preconscious system. Being the first and main means of organization of our ego drives, the infantile is also the place of our primary fantasies and of the mnemonic traces of our first sensory motor experiences. It is the most acute point of our emotions and feelings in their non-verbal state. Florence Guignard describes how the patient's infantile and the analyst infantile are interweaving in the transference-counter-transference situation as beautifully illustrated by Michael Wilchett's artistic creation enriched by Rhoda Bodecker's interpretation of it. Florence Guignard shows us how the infantile can serve as a lever in the case of blind spots and stopper interpretations. A clinical example of a blind spot in the analyst will be published in the second volume of uh, Psychoanalytic Concepts and Technique in Development, the Psychoanalyst in the City. Florence Guignard is a Swiss and French psychoanalyst, training analyst of the Paris Society and uh, a direct member of the IPA for the training in child and adolescent psychoanalysis. She co-founded the European Society for Child and Adolescent Psychoanalysis. She is an internationally renowned author and since 1970 her work translated into several languages notably on female sexuality and the child has contributed significantly to the renewal of psychoanalytical thought. I am Gaetano Pellegrini and this is Talks on Psychoanalysis, the IPA podcast that shares topics published in the IPA Society journals and Congress debates worldwide. Please check the details of the episode to find the link to download the paper. And to stay informed about the latest podcast releases, please sign up today. The Infantile in Psychoanalytic Practice Today The handloom of the psychoanalyst invites him to weave the warp of his clinical activity together with the weft of his personal metapsychology. I defined it as personal because of the important unconscious part played in it by such a witchy matter with all the vicissitudes of its 
its polysemy and translations. This is so that one day I discovered the urge to propose a new concept, the infantile with a capital I. Believe me, to jump from the adjective to the noun took me much time and reflection. I noticed that the infantile takes much place and can be cumbersome. It bothers nearly everybody, except perhaps the artists, because they intuitively know that they cannot create anything without it, but even the artists find it often difficult to cope with it. Still, there are also other exceptions, for instance, the astrophysicists, because looking at the stars requires much modesty and imagination. Another category of exceptions is found in those psychoanalysts who are treating children and adolescents in addition to their adult patients. This is probably the reason why they accept their own infantile more easily than some other people who are considering themselves so earnestly. Those child analysts know that without their own infantile, they would really be embarrassed to experience and analyze their countertransference when they are confronted to the infantile of their patients, including their adult patients. Because I always try to keep up my scientific ideal, I had to write a definition of the infantile. That was in a first book, printed in French in 1996. Today, in 2021, I could summarize my definition as follows. The concept of infantile aims at describing a basic structure of the human psychic functioning. It is a structure in motion, situated on the edges of our animality, on the frontiers between our unconscious and our preconscious system. It is the place of the first and flourishing organization of ego drives, as well as the locus of primary fantasies and mnesic traces of our first sensorial and motor experiences. It is also the most acute point of our nonverbal emotions and feelings. The infantile can be observed in every human being, whatever his psychic structure or pathology. Irreducible, universal, and specific to each of us, the infantile is the means by which our mind comes into being through all the developments of our psychic bisexuality organized by our Oedipal configuration. The concept also covers both 
the hallucinatory and the proto-symbolic expressions, preforms permanently growing in every mental activity. Until we die, our infantile keeps on being active, permeating the double spiral of our primary and secondary processes, bringing its drive vigor to more mature organizations and setting the tone of our personality as a subject in our usual adult mode of functioning. I'm going to talk about the concepts of the third type. Going on with my every Day weaving, I proposed a genealogy of the drives, starting from Freud's 1924 proposition of drive classification in the economic problem of mesochism. Some years later, I suggested a classification of psychoanalytic concepts according to their degree of complexity. I locate the concept of infantile in the family of what I named the concepts of the third type. These concepts aim at describing the links between the links. They are fit to deal with dynamic situations that develop in various and often recurrent time and space. They are altogether complex and moldable concepts. Several concepts of the kind can be found in the field of object relations. The best known is Winnicott's 1951 concept of transitional object soon completed by him in 1953 by transitional space and transitional phenomena. His found-created object is also a third-type concept, as well as Marion Milner's 1971-79 malleable object. Concepts of the third type can also be found in the field of research about identity. Namely, Winnicott again in 1960 with the true self and false self. And also Heinz Kohut's seminal studies on the concept of self from 1971 onwards until his death in 1981. Together with Otto Kernberg, although with very different theoretical backgrounds, Kohut restored the complexity of another concept of the third type, narcissism, somewhat blurred by Hartmut, Chris and Levenstein's ego-psychology in the 40s and 50s. Let's also mention in France the important work of Bella Grunberger on the topic of narcissism. In French psychoanalytic literature, the concept of self translated by le soi was not successful, maybe because of its lexical proximity 
with the French translation of Carl Gustav Jung's work. However, from 1991 onwards and until his recent death, Raymond Kahn developed very interesting ideas about le sujet and le processus de subjectalisation, both pertaining to the concepts of the third type. We also find many concepts of the third type in the field of analytic technique. For instance, Leon Greenberg, Greenberg's counterprojective identification or Thomas Ogden's analytic third, to mention only those. What does mean listening to the infantile? The concept of infantile stemmed from my interest for the universal processes of transference and counter-transference as I consider those as the starting point of any psychoanalytic process. By investigating them along our everyday work, I observed that they appear and are active precisely at the meeting point between the infantile of the patient and the infantile of the analyst. Listening to the infantile is not always an easy task. His Majesty the Baby is egocentric, hedonist, impertinent, but also pertinent and intuitive on what we'd rather prefer to hide under the carpet about our own intrapsychic and interpersonal weaknesses. However, Bion was right when he advised us, psychoanalysts, not to give too much importance to what our analyzants might discover about us. To be in, a patient knows everything about his analyst, meaning everything about his psychic qualities. Now, what is the psychoanalyst's relation to his patient's infantile and to his own? Because the psychoanalyst's working tool is his own psychic structure, we all know how difficult it is to reach most parts of it as they remain unconscious. A good metaphor of the analytic space could be a shifting constellation of points of impact that generate tensions between the psychic space of the analyst and that of the analyzant. Each of these spaces has its own organization, but they also have common features, namely a certain amount of edible organization, and a part of group mentality inherent to every human mind, according to Bean. In the analytic encounter, under the thin conscious film of the therapeutic alliance, 
the points of impact in the analytic space will be constantly active. The analyzant will cathect them on a transferential unconscious mode referring to his past. While the analyst who already explored these border spaces in his personal analysis will discover in them every day anew with each patient the emergence both of his counter-transference and of his role as an anaclytic object. During the work of elaboration set in motion by an analytic treatment, the reorganizations due to the upheaval of repression and the disappearance of certain cleavages in the analyzant will give way to new representations in the preconscious of both protagonists of the analytic couple. Such representations will inform them about the present state of their intrapsychic and inter-individual situation in the analytic relationship. At the limits of their psychic abilities, the conjunction of transference and counter-transference factors will create many emotional and instinctual resistances whose representations remain mainly unconscious, even to the analyst. In addition to his classic work of listening and analyzing the conflictual situation of the drives, emotions, object relations and identifications of his patient, It will be the analyst's task to observe the pre-conscious offspring of his own resistances. This brings me to talk about the blind spots in the analyst. In the normal course of a treatment, a basic mode and rhythm take place proper to each analytic relationship. The analyst learns to observe the particular tone of it. This specific rhythm may, however, be disrupted because it's analogous to the rhythm of breathing or blood circulation. Minor variations of it may remain unnoticed. However, a more important disturbance may happen whose symptom in the analyst is a sudden and persistent absence of representation about the analyzant's present material. I discovered that such a symptom is linked to an unconscious experience of loss of an internal meaningful object of cathexis in the analytic field. It gives the analyst a fleeting, undefined feeling of loss that blurs his capacity of atonement with the patient. To designate this sudden absence of representation, 
which catches the analytic couple unaware, I borrowed Freud's term of blind spot. In a blind spot, the process of figuration, similar to that of the dream, becomes suddenly frozen, unavailable, as if inexistent. External concrete reality, past or present, is invading the space of thinking and communication with a predominant focus on the material events and object proposed by the patient's narrative. Such an uncanny feeling is due to a particularly arousing impact of the analyzance infantile upon its analogon, the analyst's own infantile, that is ordinarily the source of his capacity to feel, if not understand, the transference situation. For instance, when our analyzant is addressing us as a castrating, super-egoish father, it is the arousing impact of his infantile upon ours that brings us to discover the characteristics of such a transferential object. Then, together with this infantile insight, our adult parts will be able to help the patient to elaborate the loss and to start the mourning process of that father of the past. When a blind spot occurs in the course of an analytic process, we are used to attribute it to a transference movement of the analyzant. But blind spots appear also on the side of the analyst, linked to his countertransference. And it is important to examine them in detail all the more because they might be tenacious and prevent for a time any further elaboration in the treatment. Like every human being, the analyst has his own defenses against two exciting conflictual or painful infantile experiences and fantasies. His only difference with the patient relies in his being trained through his personal analysis to detect these and, growing older, to refer also to his professional experience. However, Every professional activity that becomes a habit may also be at risk to miss the point of the patient's pain and unconscious demand. The psychic function of the analyst's blind spot is to conceal the transference-counter-transference relationship in certain circumstances. For instance, when a traumatic situation of the past is at risk to be repeated, may be enacted in the analytic space. A typical example of it is a situation in which the patient is splitting and 
projecting onto the analyst the pain linked to the experience of loss of an internal object or a part of his self, then experiences the analytic relationship as a concrete repetition of the past. It may happen that such a situation of projection is unconsciously, commonly denied. Commonly denied is an expression due to the psychoanalyst, French psychoanalyst Michel Fin. Commonly denied by both the analyzant and the analyst because, for instance, of the amount of violence or sadism or sexual arousal contained in it. As a result, the analyst's way of thinking and interpreting remains unconsciously impregnated by the nature of the object of transference he is embodying without his own notice. No process of figuration is set in motion. The analytic situation is frozen on the mode of being and acting of a disregarded object of transference, impossible to be worked through and put into words. A classic symptom of such a situation is the intimate feeling of irritation experienced by the analyst toward a person of the past or present surroundings of his patient, up to the point of attributing sometimes to this person the origins of all the misfortunes and suffering of his patient, and being blind to the fact that he, the analyst, is precisely embodying this person at that moment of the analytic process. This brings me to talk about stopper interpretations. Such an object loss that doesn't say its name is an unconscious challenge for the analyst's narcissistic feeling of competence and identity. Therefore, he will unconsciously try to do everything to stop the libidinal hemorrhagia that silently devitalizes the analytic relationship. Stopper representations, as I name them, will then appear and often induce stopper interpretations in the analyst's activity. The most usual ones are fairly easy to detect. They use either a reference to the personal history of the analyzant, especially when there are one or several traumatisms in his past, or a use of the analytic theory, what being qualified of talking about analysis instead of working in analysis, or else an effort to make the patient feel guilty because he doesn't react properly to an interpretation that was given to him several times already.
This should give the ultimate signal for the analyst to start looking for the blind spot in which he fell unknowingly and from which he has a vision of the world dominated by his unconscious identification to an internal object or a split part of the self of the analyzant. Sometimes the analyzant is best figuring out the situation by complaining that he feels falling into the void. As long as the analyst is unaware of his blind spot, the drive arousal produced by the encounter between the two infantiles keeps increasing. Analytic material remains in limbos, unrepresentable and hence unreachable for any reorganization at the level of secondary processes and defenses. With children in analysis, motor agitation will deeply disturb the relationship, whereas in adult treatments, eroticization of the transference will hide for a while a non-analyzed negative transference. As Freud had already noticed in his 1913 seminal paper on transference, As time passes on, should the point of drive arousal producing a blind spot not be traced and analyzed, it will be engulfed by repression. Then it might well come back through enactments and acting out in the analytic situation or else in the analyst's personal life and or somatic diseases. On the analyzant's side, the most important damage of such a situation lies in the considerable increase of his unconscious feeling of guilt. Not understood, even mistreated at the level of his infantile, he reacts like children do. Psychoanalytic practice proved that children always feel responsible and guilty for the conflicts, separations and disasters happening in their family. Defenses against a melancholic breakdown due to this unconscious feeling of guilt can go from perversions to somatopsychic pathologies, even to somatopsychotic ones, as Bian describes them. This brings me to talk about the analyst's specific situation after the end of his personal analysis. The requirements of the psychoanalyst's profession put him in a specific situation from the point of view both of the termination of his own analysis and of a normal, healthier new edition of post-analytic secondary repression. 
regardless to his infantile neurosis, supposedly solved by his personal analysis, he is confronted in an experimental way to the urge to use his own infantile every day and with every patient in order to bring into the analytic field all the span of his object relations and identifications and to express his genuine mode of thinking. This is why he has to constantly fight against the normal tendency to repress that regulates the functioning of memory in every human being. To do so, he needs to acquire a particular ability to manage his basic splitting processes and to tolerate the coexistence of different parts in his personality. He has also to accept not to be perfect and omniscient and to welcome the necessity to work with other psychoanalysts in order to get out of the impasses so vividly described by Herbert Rosenfeld. The analyst's blind spot are not responsible for all the impasses occurring in an analytic treatment. However, I can confirm that their investigation through a listening third may reduce serious problems in many analytic situations. Seeking to detect his blind spot will enhance the analyst's competencies to address his own defenses and to stop their effects on the analytic relation. He will then be more able to discover and follow the path issued from his suspended attention without memory or desire, as being recommended. To conclude, my investigations on blind spots meet Freud's reflection in analysis terminable and interminable. I quote, It seems that a number of an analyst learn to make use of defensive mechanisms which allow them to divert the implications and demand of analysis from themselves, probably by directing them onto other people, so that they themselves remain as they are and are able to withdraw from the critical and corrective influence of analysis. A little further on, he adds, it would not be surprising if the effect of a constant preoccupation with all the repressed material which struggles for freedom in the human mind were to stir up in the analyst as well all the instinctual demands which he otherwise would be able to keep under repression. And he concludes, I quote again, 
This would mean then that not only the therapeutic analysis of patients, but his own analysis would change from a terminable into an interminable task. End of quote. The help of a listening third does not replace a personal analytic work but it contributes largely to support the practitioner's narcissism in this interminable task of self-analysis. When this activity is accomplished in the framework of a working group, as Bian described it, it adds to it the experience of weaving thoughts amongst several colleagues. I mentioned this weaving activity at the beginning of the podcast and I chose to materialize it on the cover of the English edition of my book just issued, The Infantile in Psychoanalytic Practice Today, IPA Editions, Routledge. I consider it as a precious interface between the daily solitude of the psychoanalyst at work and the conflicts that bring psychoanalytic organizations to quarrel as an expression of discontent within their narcissistic settlement. <laughs> 